Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are continuing our look at the Gospel of Matthew. Today, we're going to be in the 8th chapter, and I believe probably we're going to go verses 14 to 22. They're two different stories, but I think shouldn't be a problem being able to cover them both. So, remember what's happened so far is, is that Jesus has called his disciples. He's given the Sermon on the Mount, and then he's healed a leper, and then healed the centurion's servant, and then... Now what we get is when Jesus entered Peter's house, so remember he had left where he gave the sermon, went to Capernaum, which is where they all lived. So when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. That's going to be Peter's mother-in-law. So we know something here about Peter, don't we? We know that Peter's married. So we know that that this is a man who walked off on his father and, and job. But not only that, he had at least a wife, if not children. We have no idea what he had, but he was also obviously responsible, too, for his mother-in-law. And so he, he, she must have lived with them. And so now Peter is, is, has not only left his profession, didn't just leave his father in the lurch, he also left his profession and sort of left his wife in the lurch as well. And so she must have been on board with, with the idea, and here they come. So there's this crowd of people that has come with Jesus. So he goes and sees the mother-in-law. She's lying sick with a fever. Jesus touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. What a remarkable thing, right? So he just sees her there. He goes and touches her on the hand, and the fever left, and she rose and began to serve him. So, so she wasn't just sort of tolerably feeling better, Right? She didn't just feel slightly better and say, let me just lie here a while until I get to feeling better, and then I'll, I'll you know, be able to do something. No, it says that um, she rose and began to serve him as soon as she was healed. So she's like so many people that we see, and some of the things that we kind of overlook about the healings that Jesus does, like when he tells the man uh, who's been lying at the pool for 30-something years— to get up and take up his bed and walk, he's asking him to do something that's truly extraordinary. If you've been lying there for 36 years, unable to walk, to get up is one thing. Just to get up, to have legs strong enough to stand on, second thing, but to carry something as well. Truly amazing. Same with when the disciples healed the man at the beautiful gate. He's been there for a very long time as well, and he is suddenly standing, walking, leaping, and praising God. I mean, you know, I, I've got friends who I've, I've seen get injured or whatever, and then when they come back to the gym, you can see in some cases, wow, you, that leg or whatever has really atrophied in that period of time that you were convalescing. You, you don't look the same. You know, there's things have gotten weaker, and you're talking about six weeks you know, that it, that it takes sometimes. And, and then suddenly, um, here, however, Jesus heals her to the extent that she's immediately able to get up and serve him. That evening, they brought in, and that's a good um, sort of example, by the way, for us. We've been healed in the sense that we have been raised from the dead. <laughs> we were dead in our trespasses. He raised us from the dead and then gave us eternal life. It we should do what she did, right? You healed me, therefore I'm going to get up and begin to serve you, which is what she does here. And that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word 
and healed all who were sick. You know, it's it's interesting. We we don't have room in our worldview for demons too often, right? I mean, that is not something most of us think of, and it, and it's not a common occurrence, I don't think. Although it seems today there could be a, a significant argument made that that there's a lot of demonic activity in the world, and, and and I believe that there is. I believe that 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 some of the psychological things that we deal with, I believe, are actually not psychological issues. They're actually demonic issues. The, the whole idea of, identi- of, of negating your own identity in any way, any shape, form, or fashion, particularly in, in look, I, I know what equipment I have, but I'm actually, I feel like I'm the other. This confusion over basic reality is, I believe, caused by demonic forces. And then there, there are those who pray on those who are under that oppression. And, and, and it's, we're, we're too uh, far away from this kind of idea to even think about it. But here, it's very prevalent, at least the recognition of it is very prevalent. We're going to see it in a couple, of, not, to, not today, but tomorrow, we're going to see even more powerful um, dealing with demons that Jesus did. And Jesus never questions whether these are demons involved he rebukes these things and and casts them out and people are healed they're set free from the oppression of these demonic forces you know we've seen a lot of that we used to meet downtown here in Asheville and and we used to get the craziest stuff that would happen people would come in and just do bizarre things in our worship services even and certainly in the cafe where we met there, there were very strange things that happened from time to time. People would just be absolutely furious over the presence of a Christian cafe, much less a Christian church meeting in that cafe. Um, and it, so it was um, fascinating in a bad way. But, but it reminded me that, that I live in a place where there's a lot of demonic activity, and, and I, I can know that because the satanic um, witchcraft stuff is huge in this place. We were going to do a a concert downtown a few years ago um, around Christmas, and it was several churches cooperatively were coming together to put on this show um, to preach the gospel, to to have music, you know, Christian uh, music with carols and all that in in a park downtown, and our church, because we had bad music, um, said, okay, one of the things we'll do is we will go pray over the over the park and over that whole area for weeks prior to that. And so there was, at that time, it's been removed now because of the insanity of removing all the monuments from a couple of years ago. It's been removed, but, but there was a, a statue downtown, it's a big obelisk, um, called the Vance Monument. And, and it was a, a really well-known thing and and people would say hey i'll meet you at the vance monument it was easier to meet there than to say i'll meet you at some restaurant everybody knew where the vance monument was it was at the at the end of the park right in the middle of downtown and so um we got to the vance monument the first day we were there and we noticed that there were pentagrams on the ground on every side of the obelisk drawn in chalk and we thought well that's weird so we you know erased them prayed over the monument and went on then the next time we went, so we were going like three days a week. So the next time we went, they were there again. And we did the same thing. And then again, and I don't remember how many times we did it, but but we continued to erase these things. And finally, I, I decided, you know, I probably ought to see if there's something going on. Well, as it happened, the pagan uh, Wiccan whatever community here 
had a huge, it was really well known if you were in that community, that they fully expected a spiritual vortex to be opened at the Vance Monument on the date that we happened to be having that concert. We had no earthly idea that we had planned that concert to coincide with that. And so we began to understand then that's what they were doing was they were sort of priming the pump by putting these um, pentagrams on the ground around the Vance Monument because they thought that that was a portal for a spiritual energy to come in and change everything. Like I said, we had no earthly idea. And I had to tell the other churches, hey, I want you to understand something. When we go down there that day, everything we do, we need to think of it as spiritual warfare because that's what's happening. I mean, it's, it sort of felt like a Ghostbusters thing, right? Because we're going to be worshiping in that park on the very, we're going to be worshiping the one true God on the very same day that that community believed that a spiritual vortex was going to be opened right there. And so we did. We considered everything we did, all the praise, all the worship, all the proclamation, everything, to be spiritual warfare against what they thought was going to go on. It's, it's become far more real to me, this whole idea of demons and the demonic and all that has become far more real to me since I've been in Asheville than at any time in my previous history. I just didn't come across stuff like that. But, but you can see in, in some of the anger and the vitriol, you can see this demonic influence. And, and here up in the Galilee region, there was more of it because the, they came into contact more with these pagan cultures that were worshiping false gods. They might be false gods, but, but it doesn't mean they don't exist, that they're not real. And so in that area, there was more crossover culture that was happening. And so we don't see this as much when he comes down to Jerusalem. We don't see this demonic stuff in the same way that we do when he's up in the region of the Galilee or, or any other place that, that sort of borders on Gentile territory. So that evening they were brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. And because it's Matthew, he's not going to just give us that detail. He's going to also tell us this was what to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And, and I, I, I didn't mention it yesterday directly, but I should have. And that is when Jesus said to uh, to the people, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That's also quoting Messianic prophecy. That's That's also Isaiah who prophesied that people would come from east and west. Hosea prophesied much the same, but in Hosea's prophecy, it relates far more to, um, to Jews returning, exiled Jews returning home. Here, Jesus doesn't let them form that notion because he tells them that they're going to come from east and west and some of the sons of the kingdom won't participate. So there, he, was, he was alluding there, to messianic prophecy when he's talking about coming from east and west and reclining at table in the kingdom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here, Matthew is very direct and says that this is to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So after this, we assume this is probably the next day. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side the other side of what? Well, it's the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So the crowd's already here, so we need to move. Um, in, in other Gospels, what happens at this point, 
the paralytic, if, for instance, in, in other Gospels, it, com- it comes in right here. And, and what we're told, I think it's Mark's Gospel that tells us that after this night, he got up early the next morning and went out to a desolate place to be with the Father. And then the disciples came to him and said, hey, there's a big crowd. You know, things are going great. Let's do some more work. And Jesus says, no, I've got to move on. I've got to, this has got to be displayed beyond here. And so here, he, he, he does the same thing, he gives orders to go to the other side. And, and so as he's doing this, a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. Well, there's two things here. That's remarkable that this scribe, um, remember earlier in, in, um, in chapter 7, we're told that, that the people marveled because Jesus taught with authority that wasn't like that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so one of the scribes comes, and so you've got a Jewish leader here coming up to Jesus and, and, and referring to him as rabbi, teacher. I'll follow you wherever you go. So he is offering to be a disciple for Jesus. And, and you would think it was an attractive offer because he's a scribe, and, and these other guys are just fishermen. And so now a, a guy who is a religious leader, a guy who knows the Word of God, who has respect in the community, and who would be facile with uh, reading and writing, who could write the record of Jesus' ministry, comes up and offers to follow Jesus, recognizes him as rabbi, which is a title that's really higher than his title of scribe. So it's quite a, a statement that he makes, not on the level of the centurion who refers to Jesus as Lord, but teacher it is a great statement. It's a, it's a huge statement within Judaism because it, the, the recognition was already there that Jesus hadn't been to the rabbinic schools. Where did he get this learning is a question that was always asked about him. And, and so here, though, this scribe comes up and refers to Jesus as a rabbi, even though he doesn't belong to either the house of Hillel or the house of Shammai, the great rabbinic schools of the day. This guy's recognizing him as a teacher that he's willing to follow. We don't know which teacher he was following before, but now he offers himself to follow Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What he's saying is, do you understand the offer that you just made? And so the, the offer was to follow a teacher. Jesus says, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now, the Son of Man certainly is something from Daniel. It's familiar from, from Daniel's prophecy, and Ezekiel as well uses that term, but, but it wasn't a common term for Messiah. The Son of Man was not. There, there are questions when places where people ask, who is this Son of Man? And so here Jesus is very clear about who he is. I'm not just a teacher. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So he is, he's elevating himself above the, the term this guy uses, which is, which is rabbi. So Jesus says, okay, I'm not going to deny <laughs> that I'm a rabbi, but at the same time, I'm more than a rabbi. I'm the son of man. And, and you need to understand that that's not a, a way to riches and fortune because I don't have any place to lay my head. I don't have a fixed abode like foxes and, and birds do. He's not complaining about that, but what, he, what he's saying to him is you need to count the cost. You need to recognize fully who I am, and you need to count the cost of following me. 
It's not a path to fame and glory. That's not what's on offer here. It looks like it because maybe you think that ultimately you'll see the Messiah, but but it's not. That That's not what this is going to look like. And so another one of the disciples said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, that's kind of what happens with Elijah and Elisha, right? Um, when Elijah is sent back to go to um, to the from the wilderness where he had gone because he believed that he was the only one left and he was abandoning his post as the prophet for the northern kingdom, um, when he does that, the Lord sends him back and tells him to go and anoint Elijah to be his successor as a prophet. And so what happens then is is that that he goes and he finds Elijah, Elisha. He's plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. And so when he sees him, then then he wraps his cloak over him. And then, it, it, which is the call of Elisha, is to say, I'm putting my mantle upon you. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and mother, and then I'll follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following, took the yoke of oxen, sacrificed them, bore their flesh with the yokes of the oxen, and gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. So what Elijah has initially done is to say, well, maybe I got the wrong guy. What have I done? Go back. And, and so he knew that what he had to do was he had to burn all that that he was doing. He was plowing, and, and then he got rid of it and, and took care of all that, burn it, and left it all behind. There's no question here that that's what he did. And he says, let me kiss my father and mother, and then I'll follow you. It doesn't say he returned from following him, kissed his mother and father, took the yoke of oxen. I mean, it's not that part's not there. And so that's exactly what Jesus is saying here is, is that, no, you got your opportunity to follow me. Now, you got to leave all that stuff behind, even, even the burial, burial of a father. Now, there are a lot of people who suggest that, well, the father's not dead yet, and so maybe he's just sick, and they're going to wait until afterwards. I think that's an immaterial point to make one way or another. Um, is this guy proposing a long time or whatever? And, and I doubt that he is. But but what he's doing is saying, I, I'm not seeing you as the most important thing. There's something else I have to attend to first. It's more important, therefore you'll have to wait. And Jesus says, no, that ain't going to work. So we need to recognize who he is and what the offer is, and then we need to be willing to leave everything behind, if that's the call, to come and follow him. If we don't have to leave everything behind to come and follow him, we need to count the cost, and we need to understand there is a cost. He's not just an addition to your life. He has to be at the center of your life. He deserves it. He has won that right by giving you eternal life in his name. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.